Hey, I'm Steve O'Farrell, co-founder and managing partner at The Royals, an independent Australian advertising agency that's focused on delivering unnatural change for clients through undeniable creativity. Our podcast, Chunk of Change, is where we go deep on the methods and madness required to create the sort of change that you want to see in the world. Every November around the world sees Mo Bros and Mo Sisters come together to celebrate the humble moustache in all its glory for the Movember charity and its range of men's health-related causes. Fair to say, 2020's been a challenging year, but for Movember's newly appointed CEO, Michelle Terry, it's meant re-engineering Movember's fundraising and program delivery platforms in about 20 countries around the world, just as she's getting her feet under the desk and her two young daughters settled into schooling from home. Quite honestly, I've no idea how she does it, but please get on board Movember this month because the world and men's health need it more than ever. I hope you enjoy this chunk of change with Michelle Terry, CEO of Movember. Hi, Michelle. Thanks very much for joining us on Chunk of Change. Absolute pleasure. Really nice to be here, Steve. Thanks. Great to see you again. Look, one of the many reasons I wanted to have you on the show is that you're someone who's recently transitioned from a very accomplished CMO where you were at Treasury Wine Estates both here and overseas for many years to most recently the Chief Executive Officer of the Rockstar Charity Foundation Movember in February of this year. How's it going for you so far? Look, it's been absolutely terrific and I'm just so um, thrilled and humbled to have this opportunity to be the CEO of um, you know, a brand, a movement, um, an amazing organisation like Movember and uh, it's been great. Um, it's been a little weird, to be honest, um, because I, as you mentioned, I started in February and that was uh, six weeks before the, the entire world got locked down. So I uh, had the pleasure of meeting most of my staff. So I'm located in Australia, but we have offices all around the globe um, in London um, and in the United States, in Los Angeles and New York and also in Toronto. And uh, I got to meet the crew in London and I got to meet the crew in uh uh, Los Angeles and New York, and I was just about to go on to Toronto when they uh, called a state of emergency whilst I was in New York, and uh, I thought I'd best scarf a home, and uh, I think the Canadians didn't want me as well because I'd been in New York, so I have never <laughs> met that team except uh, virtually via Sure you didn't take it personally? Oh, I didn't at all. Uh, they, they were kind of a bit like, you're, you're a bit dirty, please don't come near me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm well used to it being a Melbourneite currently recording this in a quarantine facility in Northern Territory, for the benefit of listeners, by the way. So I, I can appreciate where you're coming from. What about the differences in the role itself? Just I can only assume that the scope is is very wide and varied in the chief executive officer position as opposed to the chief marketing officer role. Yeah, look, I mean, it, it's similar and different in many ways. I mean, as you mentioned, I was lucky enough to be at Treasury Wine Estates for about 11 years and I was on the executive team for a number of those. So I'm pretty used to moving beyond marketing and being in general management as well, but uh, certainly stepping a, a level up to chief executive officer, you're right, the uh, the challenges, the opportunities, the variety is massive. Um, and it's also different insofar as I've moved from the, um, you know, for-profit corporate world into the not-for-profit purpose world. Um, so there's lots of similarities, but, you know, there's a great degree of difference as well, which is fantastic. And I'm loving it because I'm learning every day. It's great that you're loving it, Michelle. I wouldn't expect you to say anything else, to be honest, but it, it's got to be an extraordinary challenge at the same time. I mean, you've stepped into a new role in a new category for a men's health charity, one of the biggest health crises the world's ever seen. 
Well, look, I I think, honestly, like every CEO in the world at the moment, um, you know, with the advent of COVID, uh, that puts a new spit on things because, um, you know, all businesses are trying to imagine what their role in the world is now and we're no different. Um, You know, we're we're a for-purpose organisation which is all about um, improving men's health and getting men to take action on their health in tough times and, frankly, uh, you don't get tougher than this in in our lifetimes at least. Here, here. Um, and, you know, our three course areas are, uh, as I'm sure you well know, Steve, um, men's mental health and then also prostate cancer and testicular cancer. And, um, you know, all three are incredibly important and we need men to keep taking action on all three. But uh, in particular, we really saw an opportunity to step up and lean in in the mental health space. Um, we wanted to be there for the community and, uh, and uh, men across the world in, in these tough times. And, uh so it was a little bit about how do we accelerate, um, you know, the release of some of our products that were going to really help in, in times um, of disconnection or physical disconnection at least because the, the place we play in, in mental health is early intervention and prevention and a lot of that is around social connectivity. So, you know, how do you create social connectivity in a world where people are physically disconnected when they're used to uh, I guess connecting in places like pubs, uh, you know, shoulder to shoulder at sporting matches, at gigs, etc., and suddenly all those things, um, you know, were shut down. So that was a, you know, a challenge, and I think a wonderful opportunity for us to to um, really step in and, and play a really pivotal role in what's going on in the world. So that was a change uh, and a, and a challenge. No doubt, I'd be keen to to talk more about some of those those changes that you've implemented as a result of COVID shortly, but. Even stepping back to the core purpose areas of Movember, so you focus on prostate cancer awareness and research, testicular cancer awareness and research, as well as men's suicide. That's quite the combo of men's-related causes, Michelle. Are you, are you just really good at having awkward conversations or what was it exactly <laughs> that, that attracted you to the role in the first place? Yeah, look, I don't mind an awkward conversation, um, Yeah, but I think... The interesting thing is organisations like Movember and, you know, look, we exist within a network of other um, organisations who are doing great work in in furthering men's health and, you know, health in general. Um, But some of that is about making conversations around this stuff a lot less awkward. And I think that we've been able to do that quite successfully by using, you know, things like humour, by um, talking in language and in channels that resonate with men and kind of trying to take some of the barriers out of having those conversations so they are less awkward. Because you, interestingly, you have a background in psychology. Yeah, um, yeah, I do. Researchers tell us, you, you may not want to talk about this too much, but I, I believe you won the university medal at QUT for psychology. University of Queensland. But oh, uh, University of Queensland. You are Has right. your background in psychology helped you in the role so far, would you say? Yeah, look, I think so. I mean, that was, uh, you know, 20 goodness me, I think 25 years ago now, I'm coming close to that, that that (laughs) happened. But uh, um, I certainly have found it useful. um, And it helps me understand, I think, the the evidence base and the the clinical background that goes into the programs that we run. And I think the the programs are wonderful because they're very relatable, but they're certainly always um, scientifically backed, um, behaviourally changed backed, et cetera. And, And, you know, having a psychology background um, has helped me really appreciate the importance of that, as well as thinking about, you know, language and um, the empathy and, and just general mass behavioural change um, that, that that helps programs be effective. So, yeah, I think it's been really important. And complements your marketing background quite well 
too, I would imagine, because I mean, let's let's be honest, Movember is probably one of the best known for purpose brands, certainly in Australia. I can't speak for the rest of the world. Yeah, look, and um, uh, I, I think uh, marketing and psychology are really good complementary skills. And frankly, you know, I, I did a business degree as well as a marketing degree. And uh, despite having spent more than 20 years of my life up till now in the corporate world, I actually think the psychology bit in the corporate world was more useful than the business degree, just because it, it helps you think from an insight lens. It also promotes empathy, thinks about human interaction models and thinks that, you know, teaches you about models of behavioural change and influence and you know, people make up business. And what about the fact that you were at, you know, one of the world's kind of rock star wine companies managing the flagship brand in Penfolds for many years, I believe, Michelle, and now you're at a rock star NGO. How, how is the difference between corporate life? How would you describe the difference between a traditional large-scale for-profit wine business compared to a for-purpose organisation like Movember? Look, I would say that the people who own the Movember brands in their hearts um, are no less passionate uh, or different in a way that people who hold the the Penfolds brand in their hearts to be true. So there is actually a lot of similarity. Um, What I think is a little bit different is um, perhaps the desire to really improve the world that you see in the for-purpose world and some of the systems thinking that goes along with that. There's a lot of um, where in the corporate world you're very keen to what your competition is doing. Um, in the for-purpose world, you you know, it, don't get me wrong, you're, you're sometimes keep competing for dollar and mind, but there's a lot more co-opetition um, in that world and you're thinking about, you know, how can I partner with people who are going to uh, help me deliver what I want to deliver or what we collectively want to deliver in terms of, you know, real systemic change and and fantastic and positive health outcomes, in our case, for men. Is that a really important part of your role, I I would imagine? I mean, systems-related thinking, particularly when you're talking about quite complex issues such as, you know, men's suicide, I can only imagine that your efficacy and if you were to go it alone as a for-purpose organisation would be, you know, infinitely limited compared to if you had a a well-structured system and group of partners that used your collective efforts to make a change. Yeah, look, I think that's the case. And, um, you know, we've always got further to go in terms of um, collaboration, etc. But but Movember's been very collaborative for a long time in in all of the areas that it works. Um, So, for example, in the mental health space, um, it's probably not as well known as it might be that um, Movember was one of the very pivotal founding funders of Beyond Blue, for example. So there's been a long association between Movember and, 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 you know, different service providers and, and, um, you know, people who are making change in all kinds of of mental health and also physical health areas. And, for example, we partner with all, um, you know, key peak prostate cancer bodies across, you know, the UK, America, Australia, Ireland, et cetera. And, And that creates a linkage um, in the prostate cancer world and, uh, you know, really expedites that system level change, change in that area of, you know, research and also um, uh, quality of life and survivorship because it, it's great to see that prostate cancer survivor rates are, are pretty high these days and it's, you know, how do we make treatment more um, efficacious and accessible but also how do we make sure that, that you know, men who have been through this experience have the best physical quality of life and also mental quality of life afterwards as well. And what about being a female CEO of of one of the largest men's health movements in the world? To not put too fine a point of it, do you think being a woman in that environment is is a help or a hindrance, Michelle? 
Well, it's interesting that you asked me that question because the board, when they were interviewing me for my final role, uh, asked me the same question, and I think it's a good one. <laughs> um, and the answer I gave then um, and the answer I think even more now I'm, I'm in the role is I think it's helpful because if you think about how to affect behavioural change with men, women are really important in that. So men often take action once they have been influenced or they've had conversations with important people around them in their life and, uh, quite frankly... Had their butts kicked by their wives, you mean? Well, a little bit of that or, you know, some <laughs> positive positive reinforcement is the way I'd put it. But, yeah, women, women are really instrumental in, in being part of that system that makes men have awareness, take action and then reinforce that with others around them. Well said. Uh, one of my favourite columns in, in the weekend papers here in Australia is... I don't know whether you, you're familiar with it, but the What I Know About Men op-ed pieces in the in the Fairfax papers here in Australia on Sundays. Yes. What do you know about men and, and what's changed? Has anything changed since you started at Movember? I have always um, really enjoyed the company of men. Um, from high school through university up till now, genuinely some of my besties always have been and always will be men. So um, I think they're great fun. I love the practicality of men. I love the way, um, you know, generally I find men are um, up for action and adventure, which I like. Um, what I've learned more about, I guess, since I've been in Movember is just, you know, tips and tricks about how to talk to men. We put out conversation tools, for example. There's there's a great one which we put out um, a few months ago called Mo Conversations, and essentially it's it's an online mobile-enabled tool, and it's, it's a bit like kind of a choose-your-own-adventure Thing. There's, a, there's a scenario and it's kind of, it's aimed at people who are trying to help men who think they might be doing it tough but don't know really how to open the door and have the right conversations and have the flow of conversation in there. So there's various scenarios and it, it kind of coaches you through those scenarios. So um, I think I'm learning uh, every day, uh, probably to the joy of my husband, how to be a little bit more effective in having conversations with men. <laughs> I bet he's learning in the process as well, Michelle, no doubt. Possibly, possibly. We'd have to ask him, but... Uh, it's an interesting point. Why are blokes so shit at talking about their feelings? Look, I think a lot of it is socialisation and, you know, you hear the word toxic masculinity being bandied around a lot. You know, I think historically men have been taught that it, it, it's weak to talk about their feelings and, you know, to maintain a stiff upper lip and that people will judge them. What I think is brilliant, though, is I think we've seen a, a huge shift you know, in in the generation of men that are coming through, and I can certainly see it with the younger men I interact with in not only the current workplace but ones I've left previously, it is much more uh, socially acceptable um, for people to express themselves and admit they're doing it tough, and I think that's brilliant. And, frankly, I think looping back to the COVID thing and the whole change we're seeing in the world now, that will become ever more so now um, because some of the big institutions like governments and corporates, et cetera, are opening up the conversation in a way they we wouldn't have seen um, 10 years ago or even five years ago. And that's going to really encourage change. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, other than the, the work that you do in the field, is there any particular programs of interest that Movember take on board internally to encourage employees, for example, to open up and talk about how they're feeling on any given day? Yeah, look, we've got a, um, we've got a really strong culture, I think, of, of sharing and checking in. So, and we have some psychologists in, on staff who, I, I guess, really encourage us to practice what we preach. So uh, we kind of beta test conversation models. Um, there's a conversation model that sits behind a lot of our products and indeed some other, you know, partners out there like Are You OK, um, which is the ALEC model, which is, um, you know, ask, listen, encourage, check in. 
And that's the backbone of some of the internal work we do um, amongst ourselves and our staff. Fantastic. I mean, Movember's been really great at promoting online cause-related initiatives. Um, You mentioned about that conversation tool earlier and the fact that blokes so often seek support face-to-face. So presumably you're shifting more and more of these services online. Do you think COVID's going to be a a turning point in general in terms of mental health? As As I mentioned, we're recording this in the Northern Territory on our way to Adelaide, I hope. And yeah. it's been remarkable to me to see the number of people walking around in the in the early morning purely knowing that it's presumably good for both their physical and mental health. Do you think that's one of the things, one of the positive things that's actually going to come out of this whole experience for us? Yes, I think so. I think, think people's um, heightened sense of, you know, the importance of physical and mental health, but also the, the heightened sense of how important connections are in our lives because, you know, humans are social animals and through this uh, wonderful and wacky worldwide experiment we've got going on of, of not being able to have our normal um, social interactions, I think we've all come to appreciate just how precious they are and just how important they are in, in keeping the equilibrium in people's lives and, and keeping them having that holistic, you know, social, emotional, physical, mental wellness piece together. And I think, as I said, corporates and organisations and and governments are appreciating that much more. So I think we'll see a lot more sensitivity about trying to enable that. And also back to your point around modes of delivery, thinking, okay, beyond face-to-face, and face-to-face is incredibly effective and incredibly important, don't get me wrong, but how do you enable, um, you know, those conversations and those interventions through other means and be they digital tools on the mobile or, you know, be they, um, you know, telehealth conversations or, you know, Zoom dinner parties or the like. I mean, that's the role of digital in terms of the field and some of the program work that you do, but you've actually got a a really strong thread of technology right throughout your work history. Some of the work that you did at Treasury in terms of 19 Crimes and, and the Living Wine app, which has been downloaded millions, if not trillions of times around the world probably by now. Are there any other new digital initiatives that you're particularly excited about at Movember? There's the program initiatives, but also I'd be interested to hear about the fundraising side of things as well. I was really thrilled when I came on board here at Movember and quite frankly, extremely grateful given what we've got going on about how well digitally enabled Movember already was. So if you think about um, the way that the uh, campaign, the fundraising campaign's been run, it's been mobile enabled for quite some time and essentially you know, people register and then they create their own space and it's linked, you know, to the Facebook API. And uh, we essentially ask people to use that mobile technology to update what's going on, take pictures, et cetera. So, so we have a really good base, basis of technology already to leverage off in terms of thinking about, oh, how's this going to work when you all are only on technology? Because certainly Movember's been a brand that has been about great physical experiences and getting together and socialising, et cetera. We've had to think you know, quite differently about how we might do that in, in um, a world where that's not necessarily safe. So um, the team are working on a lot of kind of tweaks to our, our products, our fundraising product set. So, for example, um, if you've been in, involved in Movember at all, you would know that we have a ritual of people have a shave down um, at the beginning of yes, the month. Uh, so we're going to have the world's biggest virtually connected shave down all around the world which essentially will start on um, the 30th of November and then won't finish until I think uh, it's the the 2nd of uh, November in LA 
uh, taking into account wow. time zones. So, so that there's the you know a real great example of uh, virtualizing a community event and, and making it bigger and better. So people will be shaving down with their mobiles in front of a mirror, presumably, yep. all in the spirit of men's health yep. at once. Exactly. On Zoom. On Zoom, exactly. Well so, done. Well done. Yeah, it'll be super great. And, um, you know, we, we had a, we've had a few trial runs for these big connection events. We ran something in Australia um, back in May called May 8. Um, and May 8, eight. If, if you say May 8, exactly, eight. Is, is a historical date that we've, um, you know, really encouraged men to go out and actively check in, check in with their mates and see how they're doing. And this year we were like, right, you know, just because we can't be together doesn't mean we can't be virtually together. So the team in Australia did a brilliant job got a whole bunch of sponsors on board, including Lululemon and Gillette and um, Politics and Still and a bunch of comedians and musicians and yoga teachers and, and the like uh, volunteered their time, which was amazing. And we had 13 hours of live content back to back enabled through Facebook. And I think we had something like 33,000 people log in. We were promoting the Movember Conversations tool I mentioned to you at the time and releasing it. We had 120,000 downloads off the back of that. And I think a, about a 5 million person reach in terms of promoting the event um, in the run-up to it. So um, I think there's a good example of, of how you can do it. And presumably some of these pivots and, and changes will actually become permanent things for many organisations as well. I can only imagine if you can take your event virtual and, and do it at scale as a result for a lot less cost, then that's going to result in significant improvements in terms of your fundraising strategies overall. The other factor, of course, is that you're a genuinely international organisation. A lot of people might just think of Movember as being an Australian-only brand. Yeah, absolutely. And um, so we've got four major markets that really um, form the bulk of our fundraising, Australia, Canada, UK and the US, and then, you know, smaller contributions from the likes of New Zealand and Ireland and, and, and Europe, et cetera, and actually 20 countries around the world is where we fundraise. But, you know, Canada's been great, a great success story and uh, that was launched about 10 years ago and... Uh, the team that launched up there did an incredible job because they got some really high profile ambassadors um, and people on board, as well as kind of created a, a chapter based system across Canada, which was a, a phenomenal success story. But uh, the likes of, you know, really high profile um, hockey players got behind us and... They love their facial hair, don't they? Oh, they do. And I saw this <laughs> lovely video um, of Justin Trudeau the other day, um, who was spruiking a very nice Mo, uh, talking really? about Movember in 2013. So, uh, What's his Mo shape of preference? Kind of a little pointy one and then a slight mini goatee, which, uh, uh, yeah, right. yeah, he looked... Almost uh, Salvador Dali-esque. Kind of, yeah. I mean, he looked yeah, okay. tr Trudeau-level handsome, of course, still. But, <laughs> of course. Yeah. Oh, that doesn't change no matter the shape of the Mo, Michelle, I'm sure. Oh, absolutely not. <laughs> Sorry, I shouldn't crush I mean, on the Canadian Prime Minister and, and in... <laughs> That's okay. Everyone else does. All right, every, fine. Every, everyone else does. Because your international success as an organisation is phenomenal. Like you, you would be the envy of so many Australian charities that have failed to crack it internationally. You mentioned a couple of those initiatives in Canada specifically, but what do you put that international success down to? I do have to give a lot of credence to the, the four founders who, you know, created Movember and uh, started off in a, in a small bar in Fitzroy back in the, in the day, um, in the uh, first decade of the noughties. They were incredible passionate advocates and drove it, physically moved to other countries to, to make that happen and um, really drove the early success. And then I think just having a strong team, but beyond the team and the founders, I think it's it's the brand, the way the brand talks. I think it's about the universal insight of we've got a real crisis in men's health going on here. You've essentially got men 
dying six years younger than women. You've got three quarters of suicides are men and, you know, one in six men will be diagnosed in prostate cancer by the time they're 85. And, that, and that's, you know, not limited to one country. That That's the universal truth. So I think the brand resonated, the cause resonated and, um, you know, people were looking for a fun thing to do and, you know, the peer-to-peer model and um, the embrace of technology and social media um, within its early days, I think were all really good ingredients to success and, and the, the global reach of, of Movember. Yeah, I'm keen to talk about brand experience in a second because I think you do it better than just about anybody. You did mention the ambassador program and the success of the chapter-based approach that you've taken in Canada. Can you sort of break that down a little bit for us in terms of why you feel those two initiatives in particular resulted in such success? We've been incredibly lucky with the caliber of, you know, well-known people and celebrities who've been prepared to not only uh, grow a mo. Um, but have also been um, prepared to share their stories about why this resonates with them or their own personal experience. For example, Stephen Fry has been an amazing ambassador to us in the mental health space. So what that does, um, as you would well know from your background, Steve, is just provide you know, real cut through, um, you know, newsworthiness, uh, endorsement, et cetera. And then that marries with the grassroots movement of uh, men encouraging their mates to grow a mo and sponsor them and getting together and doing it together. And then, you know, clearly we are also present in a lot of organisations and workforces. So there are so many organisations around the globe who have been big supporters of Movember for years and years and years, and it's a huge part of their culture every November for, you know, their teams to have a bit of healthy internal competition, who who can grow the best mo and who can raise the most money. It's or, a great icebreaker in meetings, isn't it? Yeah. The old, oh, you must be growing a mo for Movember. It's a perfect little icebreaker, I find, in that time of year. Yeah, yeah. Look, and, you know, the guys who came up with them were brilliant insofar as, it, you know, the human faces then a walking billboard. <laughs> Makes a yeah. lot of sense. Makes a lot of sense. And what what is the key to keeping the brand experience fresh over the past 25 years? Because you are now so much more than just growing a mo for, for the month of Movember. Can you talk to us a little bit about how you've managed that? Yeah, look, we've tried to keep the brand and the movement evolving and um, and also the experience of fundraising. So I might take fundraising first. Um, sure. So clearly it started off as let's grow a mo and then uh, let's have a fundraising mechanism behind that. But along the way, we've also created other ways to fundraise because sometimes people don't want to grow a mo or in the case of me, I couldn't possibly grow a mo if I tried unless I took, you know, a, a very big hormone injection which would make things go horribly wrong. Um, so You can have a mask mo. Oh, we'll get, we'll get to those. We've got some November masks coming out shortly, oh, there you actually. Go. There you but go. Uh, a good idea, never left on the table. Look forward um, to seeing them. Thank you. We'll get you one for sure. Fantastic. Um, yeah, but for example, we now have a, a, other uh, products or mechanisms that, that people can get behind um, during the traditional Movember campaign period. And that's. Um, for example, we've got this product called Move, and Move is associated with you know people wanting to run exercise challenges. And uh, for example, we encourage people to um, exercise for sixty kilometres or sixty miles, depending on what's the uh, parlance in in their their geography. And that's to reflect essentially the sixty men that take their lives globally every hour. So that's a man a minute. So that you know that's all kinds of different physical challenges that people undertake. We've also got a host product which essentially is around people, you know, maybe hosting a trivia night or, you know, hosting the world's longest lunch to raise money in that way. And there's a um, there's a new product we're actually bringing out this year called Mow Your Own Way. And Mow Your Own Way is, is just 
for people who just want to run crazy epic challenges. And it might be that, you know, they're running back-to-back marathons or they're, you know, running a unicycle across the Nullarbor or you name it. That's the kind of thing that, that we attract through Mow Your Own Way. And uh, we're, we're saying this year it's the this could be the most important mow you ever grow, but that you don't really need to grow a mow. You can do these other things as well. I reckon the puns that you can build off your brand name alone, Michelle, are almost endless. How do you, how do you decide... And I'm sure there's no shortage of ideas from anybody in terms of how you can fundraise for such worthy causes. But how do you decide which types of product ideas, for want of a better term, it's in old school marketing parlance, it's portfolio management. How do you choose which ones to go with and which ones not? And also, how do you choose which ones to kill at the end of the day? Really good question. I think we want them to be on brand in line with our values of, you know, having fun and while doing good, um, creating remarkable experiences. We want them to resonate with the community and and feel aligned with the, the, you know, the men's health movement messaging we're getting out there because we really have evolved in time from being just a fundraising organisation to a fundraising organisation that also creates, delivers and funds um, incredible impact programs. In fact, over 1,200 of them across the life cycle. So, we, we try and evolve within that portfolio strategy um, per se. And then just things that we think are really going to have fantastic cut through. Um, one thing that I was meant to be doing in India that unfortunately has had to be postponed, but uh, we will get there, was a fantastic idea that, that the team had come up with called the Great Modere. And the Great Modere would have seen us for our inaugural year uh, in tuk-tuks with a bunch of celebrities and corporate CEOs racing around the Himalayas um, to raise money and awareness for men's health. So you can see oh, it's some... Oh, Steve, don't oh, you worry, I'll hit you up, my friend. Count me in, count yeah. me in. Yeah, I was that's, uh, that's great. pretty excited when I heard about that one. <laughs> so, so do you manage that quite tightly? I mean, in a business like Treasury, where you were previously, and particularly with brands like Penfolds, where the brand keys are held so tightly to your chest, is it a little different? at a for-purpose organisation like Movember? Um, look, I'd say that the Movember brand is a little bit more fun than the and than the Penfolds brands, but they're both, you know, challenger brands in their own way, right? The Movember brand is managed quite tightly. I mean, we, like every good brand, have you know, brand guidelines, brand truths, you know, an essence that we run against and, and ways to filter what works and what doesn't work. So I would say it comes with a lot of innovation in it inherently in the nature of the brand, but it, it doesn't mean that that's scattergun where we are quite, you know, tight about it because it, along with our people and our programs, it's our biggest asset. Yeah, there's there's no doubting how well managed I think the brand has been for so many years going back to the founders, whether deliberately or not, you are one of the, the gold standards in terms of for-purpose organisations with exceptionally well-represented brand experiences. I mean, your, your impact strategy document, which I took a look at, I would describe it almost, it looks more like a fashion catalogue than a strategy document for a full-purpose organisation. Is that a deliberate thing? I'm going to take that as an excellent compliment, Steve. It is a compliment. It is a compliment. It makes it pleasant to read. We want it to be pleasant to read because we want people to read it, to understand it in reasonably plain and motivating language, um, to want to partner with us and want to jump on board of, you know, the movement of taking action on their health. And, uh, the visual look and feel of it is is an important part of making that attractive and is an important part of how we stand up as a brand. So um, deliberate choice for sure. You know, it wasn't all about creating PowerPoint boxes and, you know, reams of uh, four-point font dependencies. Yeah, your communication's beautifully simple. It's funny and, and no doubt highly memorable as well. 
In it, you talk a lot about your Mo bros and your Mo sisters and the importance of community. Can you talk to us about how this extends to the LGBTQI community also and how you ensure inclusivity as part of your brand experience as well? I'm really glad you asked this question because, uh, you know, you're hitting on a bit of a nerve that, of, of things that we're talking about internally as well, because we do want to absolutely make sure that, you know, we're diverse, we're equitable, we're inclusive. You know, not only what we what we do internally at Movember, but how we, we talk to our community, et cetera. And uh, this year for the first year in our campaign um, registration process, we will have a third option, which is a non-binary gender option. And, you know, one thing that we're really keen to do through that, we'll, we'll be asking members of the community how they want to be representative so that, you know, we're not being assumptive. So that that's an initiative that I'm really proud the team is, is passionate about um, making happen this year because the broader world is changing in the right direction and uh, we certainly need to reflect and I think lead in that. So that's the, the fundraising side of things. What about your programs of work that you're undertaking? We've spoken a little bit about the work that you're doing in the digital space um, in terms of connecting conversations amongst blokes who need it most. What about some of the research and major pieces of work that you're doing with research partners around the world? Can you, can you give us a little bit of a sense of how that works? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'll pick up on a, f- a few different things. And I would say, you know, regardless of whether they're our digital tools or our kind of more traditionally deep science uh, biomedical research, they're, they're all evidence-based and we are really, really clear on that in terms of, of our program strategy of what we will and won't back. But if you, you take it to the extent of, you know, where we intersect with the biomedical world, um, we're a leading global funder of, of prostate biomedical research. So, since 2007, we've led the way in, in breakthrough discoveries that have led to new tests and new treatments that are saving men's lives. We're an international research funder, so we, we try and bring the best minds together in the world to get results faster. It's kind of that galvanisation piece. Mm-hmm. And our, our main focus in the biomedical research world is, is research that leads to new tests or new treatments living with or at high risk with the kind of lethal um, strain of prostate cancer. So that's been going since 2007 is one of our, our you know, longest pieces um, of research. I talked a little bit, I, I might have alluded to our clinical quality registries as well. So that's again where we're trying to link up communities of men who are going through prostate cancers to try and develop a better understanding of their experiences. So we compile reports or we have a product uh, that helps doctors and patients throughout their diagnosis and treatment journey talk about their experiences and then comparing the experiences across regions. So essentially the idea of it is to, to look at the outcomes and say, okay, well, what happened? What were the antecedents to these outcomes? And therefore try and raise the bar right across um, in the world in terms of treatments and outcomes. Is that a key point of discussion for you with your board, presumably, Michelle? I can only imagine the amount of scrutiny that's placed on not-for-profits. We work with a bunch of not-for-profits at the Royals, my wife, has worked in um, the for-purpose sector for many years. Can you give us a little bit of a sense of how those conversations take place and the type of scrutiny that's applied to, for example, the ratio of your admin costs relative to program delivery? Yeah, look, um, I can report um, that that is a topic that we look at all the time because it's, it's you know, something that, that we believe we, we pride ourselves on making sure that we do get the dollars that are raised through to, you know, the essentially the end outcome that we want to drive through our program. So um, in terms of statistics, uh, I think it's 16.4 was last year 
the amount of cents that was spent on fundraising so that the residual dollars then flow through uh, to programs. And uh, some of them are multi, multi-year programs. So, you know, as I mentioned, the, the prostate cancer biomedical research we've been running since 2007. Some of them are, you know, emerging programs. So we've got this wonderful program, for example, called Ahead of the Game. And that's um, designed to build resilience in, in men who are between 12 and 18. So basically boys moving into manhood through community sport. And again, this is very evidence-based, but essentially it, it links uh, and builds skills in that paradigm um, for the student athletes with the parents and with coaches through a kind of a train-the-trainer model. And we've had really good success with that in, in the pilots we've run, in particularly in the UK, and we're, we're scaling it here in Australia. And that kind of program, it's wonderful because, uh, you know, it's grassroots and it's transformative. And you can run a bit of it online if you want to in a, in a COVID world, or generally we've been running it face-to-face and it certainly gets the backing and support of, you know, major sporting clubs who, you know, think it's 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 brilliant in in building up the next generation of athletes and and indeed, you know, community-based sports people. And and does that present an interesting challenge for you as a CEO who's responsible for an organisation that is vertically integrated, for want of a better term, in terms of fundraising at the start of the brand experience all the way through to program delivery in the back end? Can you perhaps elaborate some on how you plan and also measure performance at both ends of that spectrum? Presumably, they're quite different KPIs in terms of raising dollars with a fundraising focus versus trying to make a positive impact in all those programs and areas of research that you work with in terms of programs? Yeah, absolutely. And um, we've uh, developed up a, a balanced scorecard to have a look at that. So, you know, on a balanced scorecard, there's everything through from dollars through the door and relative growth there to, you know, cost ratio management through to diversification into new revenue sources so that, you know, we can innovate in that area through to how strong is our brand? How are our people doing? And then certainly in the programs area, you know, real metrics against the efficacy of those programs. And each program has a very detailed efficacy case at its inception that goes through our board and also through our global scientific committees that support the board in that way. Um, so, you know, you've got from two benchmark metrics, but then, at, at, you know, at, at kind of an abstracted up level, it's how many men do we reach? You know, what material change did we make in terms of behaviour are, are, are the, you know, the key headline thoughts? So what role does data play for you in that regard, Michelle? Does the role of data in your decision-making process mirror somewhat the for-profit space or are there some differences that you could perhaps elaborate on for us? There's a lot of similarity, to be honest. I mean, Movember is a very well-managed and governed organisation, so we pay close attention to all the kind of ratios and metrics that you would expect in, in a for-profit organisation in terms of, you know, budget management and um, all that kind of stuff. But instead of uh, EBITs margins, we might be talking cost ratios or impact percentages, et cetera. So the metrics are different, but the, probably the mode is not. And then, you know, data, we're, we are, you know, getting ever better and we're at the beginning rather than the end of our journey of using data for things like audience profiling and segmentation and, you know, supporter journey and all that kind of stuff. So there's a degree of similarity. I'd just say that it's the expression of it that's different. How are you managing to wrap your head around the efficacy data for all the scientific research? We mentioned your psychology background previously being an enormous help and that with your commercial background combined obviously puts you in good stead, but you must be dealing with some extraordinary levels of complexity as it relates to, for example, prostate research or testicular cancer progress. You know, I'm a bit over six months into the journey and I would describe myself as by no means an expert there, but I think 
you know, you, you also have to think if it's not easy to understand, then maybe it's not quite right because it needs to be understandable enough to be able to be explained to people who are not scientists because, you know, our, we have a scientific or three scientific committees essentially that advise us. But in the end, our board is essentially made up by a mix of people with skills, some of whom are, you know, health experts and some of which quite frankly aren't. And so I've got some background in, you know, psychology and understanding. And uh, luckily through that process, I'm a bit of a stats nerd. And, you know, I can certainly read all financial statements and balance statements and have all that corporate goodness. But, you know, I think for a program to be effective, you need to be able to translate um, the outcomes in, into reasonably plain and simple language and, and, you know, easily understandable metrics. Yeah, I love that. I mean, that's certainly true from a research point of view in terms of the work that you do in field. But I would also argue from a marketing and brand point of view, it's equally important in terms of representing your brand and marketing on strategy on in very simple and easy to understand terms as well. That's always going to be something that we will strive to get better and better at because people who are fundraising for us you know, they have a, a real interest in knowing where their dollars go and also what impact. And people understand that maybe, you know, the dollar that they give this month, you know, might affect change in three years. But telling that story makes it compelling and sticky and, you know, gets people coming back and back and back and seeing, you know, seeing the change as it, as it builds over time. So you're at home in lockdown in Melbourne, Australia with your husband and your two beautiful girls. I'm, I'm assuming your husband works. How, how's your family managing things in lockdown? Um, look, suffice to say, I think like every uh, family, some highs and some lows. Um, I will be extremely excited when the schools uh, resume. We don't know when that's <laughs> going to be, know. but uh, we've got all fingers and toes crossed. And, uh, you know, that's not only the parents, but it's it's the kids. The kids are really, um, really missing their friends and missing their, their normal routine. I mean, my girls are only five and seven, but... Uh, I think that seems to be a universal experience that that many families are having. So um, it, it's been lovely to spend more time with them, and you know we've developed up a few new family rituals. But uh, suffice to say, I think there is a little bit uh, that can be said about too much family togetherness. Tell us about the family rituals. What are you doing differently? I think for a lot of people, it's probably changed their relationship with their kids in some way. Yeah, funnily enough, um, you know, look, I'd love to put my hand up and say, you know, we've become, you know, artisanal sourdough creators. We have made zero bread in this lockdown, but uh, we do make packet cake mixes. Um, that's one of the things I do with the girls. Um, my husband's discovered this thing um, which is is called Just Dance, whereby it's kind of in-home dance karaoke, which uh, you can, you know, get sticks or you can A use them. A Nintendo Switch? Yes, exactly. I was playing it last night. Oh, there you go. You're all over it. Um, I am terrible. Yeah, I'll, I'm terrible as well. Um, yeah, my husband and my girls are really good at it. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I get dragged in every so often and it's, you know, usually some horrible Taylor Swift song. And, uh, yeah, I've got some moves going on now, but uh, we do that a bit. Um, we're teaching. You just, you just can't wait till you can bust them out on a regular dance floor, Oh, right? totally. Yeah, <laughs> I'm going to be just a legend. Nice to hear. Nice to hear. And what about charity and and giving i don't know whether you you've read barefoot investor and he talks about three different types of of saving to appreciate what we have in the world yes but if charity begins at home any advice that you'd give your two girls in particular about the importance of giving back yes well we did read barefoot investor and um, i have uh, three little cubes colored cubes that uh, uh, if and when they get money they can choose between which is um, spend save or share um, and 
I have to say, I'm pretty proud of them. We, we lived in the United States until about a year ago and we lived in an, a suburb called Berkeley, which is just across the bay from San Francisco, probably one of the most um, left-leaning and progressive postcodes in the United States. And they went to a school there, and a preschool, and uh, my, my oldest was in kindy there. And it was really progressive and they really talked a lot about social issues and particularly homelessness, which is a huge problem in the US. Um, and my kids, bless their hearts, um, are so incredibly engaged with the, with the idea of homelessness. And at that school, they did a, a march, which was about a mile between the preschool campus and the, and the, and the um, junior school campus, um, where they had little placards that said, help end homelessness. And they had T-shirts that said, every bee needs a hive. And they've still got the T-shirts and they love them, which I think is just gorgeous. So if we ever pass any, anyone who's homeless, they're, you know, they're tugging on me going, mummy, mummy, give me money. Um, so I, I'm really... Oh, that's beautiful. I love that. Yeah, me too. And hopefully, uh, you know, they, they continue this, this, this um, give back mentality. Well done. Well, look, thank you so much for joining us today on Chunk of Change, Michelle. I've loved following your career over the past, gosh, 15 or so years now. Um, you did an extraordinary job with Treasury and did an amazing job growing one of the world's most iconic wine brands in Penfolds. I can only imagine the positive change that you're going to bring about, not just to the Movember brand, but most importantly, to awareness and research around those really fundamental areas of men's health in terms of testicular cancer, prostate cancer and suicide prevention as well. So thank you so much, Michelle Terry, for joining us today on Chunk of Change. Thanks, Steve.